Welcome to a brand new episode. Mike Driscoll, The Python Show. Hello and welcome to The Python Show with Mike Driscoll. I am Mike Driscoll, your, co- your host today. And today I just wanted to talk to you about how I became a programmer. A lot of people end up asking me about this, but first I think I need to back up a little bit and just talk about who I am. So again, my name is Mike, and I'm into the Python programming language. And I didn't start out uh, liking the Python programming language. In fact, I wasn't even sure I wanted to get into computing. Um, but I did. And so one of the reasons that people like to ask me, you know, why did I get into Python or why did I get into tech is that I have a popular blog uh, called Mouse versus Python that a lot of people read and learn from. And uh, I've written over 10 books now on the Python programming language. And so people are just like, how'd you get into that? And so I thought it'd be fun to talk about that in today's podcast. So the first thing I want to talk about is how do I get into programming? Because you kind of need to know that to really understand how I got to Python. So, you know, I'm a typical teenager way back in the day, and I'm like, what do I want to be when I grow up? You know, I have lots of ideas. And eventually, um, after uh, choosing a couple of different ones, I started playing video games with my brother. Uh, My brother and I had done a lot of lawn mowing, and we'd saved up enough money to buy this newfangled thing called the Sony PlayStation. And that's how I got into gaming. Now, I was never a professional gamer, but I really enjoyed playing games with my brothers, and it was just a lot of fun. But one day, I saw in a video game magazine that there was a blue PlayStation, also known as the Dev Machine or the Dev Box, which you could use to actually create the games. Um, it was crazy expensive to me at the time. It was like $800, maybe $1,200. And I was like, wow, that'd be really cool to be able to create my own video game. But how does that work? You can't just get a machine, and it's just going to like take bra- ideas out of your brain. How do you actually make the images and the music and all that stuff uh, work together? Well, the article actually explained a little bit about it. And it said that uh, at that time, a lot of the Sony PlayStation games were written in C++. And so I decided, you know, I'm going to look into doing video games as my career. So I live in Iowa, and there really isn't any video game schools in Iowa at all, which I soon discovered. In fact, there wasn't really any places that did video games in uh, the USA at the time, other than I think there was a place in Arizona that did a little bit of it. Or you could go to Canada to a place called DigiPen. And those are like the, the main places at that time where you could actually go and get a degree in video game programming. So I decided that rather than, you know, going into deep debt, I'm just going to learn how to program. Uh, I figured, you know, you need to know how to, you need to know the basics of programming. Maybe I can learn game theory sometime in the future. And so I went to, to school to get a computer science degree. And at that time, you know, uh, we're getting close to, um, the year 2000, and I, I was my understanding that you could get along fine with a two-year degree in computer science. So I got that two-year degree, and then the dot-com bust happened, and, you know, my professor was like, well, you should probably get a four-year degree. It'll be better for you, but get the four-year in management and information systems, which is basically a business computer science degree. Why he recommended that, I still don't know, but that's what I ended up doing, and I ended up getting this degree. 
So at that time in the university, they taught you C++, Visual Basic, 6, I believe, Assembly, um, it's another one, COBOL, a little bit of Java, and at the university itself, they had just introduced C Sharp, which I think came out the same year that they decided to teach it. So the professor didn't know it either. That was kind of interesting. You'd think they would have had some kind of pre-training for the professor, but basically the professor had to learn the language with us, and it wasn't that great of a class. So I didn't learn. I, I don't feel like I learned a lot in those classes, but, you know, I got my degree, and here I am in the dot-com bust, and everyone else is uh, hiring people, but they don't really want, you know, new people. And it was kind of frustrating. So what happens when you can't find a job in your field? You go looking for anything you can find. And so eventually I found a web designer job where I could uh, do Microsoft front page for an antique dealer. Kind of a weird way to get my feet wet in uh, programming, so to speak. Because it really isn't programming. If you ever uh, look up uh, Microsoft front page, you will quickly see that front page is basically uh, our Microsoft Word for the web. So you create a web page kind of in Word and you publish it. And it's a little bit more complicated than that, but not, not a whole lot. Um, so yeah, I didn't learn a whole lot about web programming because of that. But I did get to do a lot of hands-on uh, technical support because the place that I ended up working at, it was an antique dealer, and no surprise, they were kind of backwards when it came to IT. They didn't have the machines networked at all. So you'd have a computer in the back office, a computer in the front office, computers in other parts of, in the warehouse, none of them could talk to each other. So I uh, got them all hooked up into a network, and I learned how to do all that you know, uh, using tutorials, and a friend of mine also knew how to help me a little bit. And so, so soon we had a local uh, network. And, you know, those kind of activities, they're really helpful. In fact, I, I thought about going into IT because I was like, this is really cool. I can wear all the hats and I can do system administration. And eventually, I was only there for like two years, I got hired on by the local government, the local county government, and they were like, we want you to come work for us and we're going to uh, uh, teach you Python, basically, or you'll have to learn Python on the job. Because basically what they wanted to do was they wanted to replace all of their uh, Microsoft apps and their login scripts with Python. And the reason being is that um, the login scripts, and the, well, not the login scripts, but the Microsoft products, they were using VBA for, and so they had uh, Visual Basic for applications running on top of Microsoft Office. And every time they upgraded Microsoft Office, it would break their applications and adapt to rewrite significant portions of them to get them working again on the new version of Office. And so my boss was like, one, he didn't want to pay, keep paying Microsoft fees every time they upgrade. And two, he just wanted his apps to work without having to you know, rewrite all this stuff. So he wanted to switch to Python. They're already using Python for their website. They're using a Plone Zope website, which is actually pretty popular in government work. Plone and Zope is used for a lot of libraries. And one of the reasons it's used for libraries in government is that it has really good accessibility features so that uh, you know people who have a hard time seeing or hearing, the website actually has stuff built into them to make those easier to use. And that was kind of a new thing in web frameworks back then. And I still think it's one of the ones that's like one of the most compliant for government stuff. 
of any web framework. At least that, that was my impression. Maybe Django has caught up to that. Anyway, I got to learn a little bit of Plum Zope on that job, and they also were using uh, Cherry Pie and the original Turbo Gears for some internal web apps. So that was fun to learn about those as well. Anyway, so I am learning Python, and it's basically a big fire hose because I'd never heard of Python before, but it was a language that really kind of fit my brain. And when I got there, they had just um, released Python 2.5. I had been trying to learn 2.4 at my old job to kind of prepare me for this. And I was glad to uh, grab the new version because they added some new bells and whistles. I think they added the with statement in 2.5, and they added the subprocess module, and they just cleaned up a few things. So I really enjoyed learning Python too. It, it was like the first language that really fit my brain. And on the other hand, I felt under pressure, like I was under fire because I had to learn this language, or I might get fired uh, from my job. So back then, there wasn't a ton of books about Python, but I went ahead and bought all the beginner books I could find. It was like uh, Head Start with Python, uh, Mark Lutz's uh, Learning Python. Um, there was a core Python book that was really good. And so I had like, I don't know, five or six books, beginner books, and a couple of intermediate ones that I was reading through. And I was also using like Dive into Python on, on uh, online, which was an online book that was free for a long time. And I think it still is. I believe it's by Mark Pilgrim, something like that. I'll put a link in the in the show notes if I find it. Anyway, so I'm learning Python, but I'm having a hard time remembering everything that I'm learning, especially when I started trying to replace those VBA apps. Because when you try to replace VBA apps, you know, the customer, which is my coworkers and other offices at the, in the county, they want that Microsoft to look and feel. How do you do that with Python? The... GUI, the, desk, the desktop GUI framework that comes with Python is called tkinter and doesn't really look or feel like a Microsoft application. So I did try to use it, but um, the widgets just don't, don't, just don't work. You need like a, a really good grid widget that looks like a spreadsheet. tkinter doesn't really have one like that, or at least it didn't at that time. They had some kind of hacky extra widgets you could install that kind of gave you a, gr a grid, but it was nowhere near as flexible as, as to work as a spreadsheet. And I knew my, I knew accounting wouldn't like it. So, uh, and they also didn't have a good uh, list control either that was built into tkinter. You had to get like, the P I think it was called the PMW plugin. And it kind of had a list widget, but it didn't, it also didn't look right. And so I just knew, you know, if I try to use tkinter, I'm going to get lots of complaints and then lots of unhappy customers. So I looked at PyQt or PyQt. Um, the problem with PyQt is it's had a really confusing license at the time. And I still find it to be one of the most confusing licenses of any of the desktop GUIs for Python. But I didn't think my boss would go for it because the commercial license was kind of weird. And while we're technically government, Neither one of us could tell if we had to pay for the license, and that got us back into licensing fees, which we were kind of trying to avoid by using Python. So the next choice was WXPython, or WixPython. Um, that's the one I ended up using. And the cool thing, and one of the main reasons that I used it, is that WXPython, well, I uh, use native widgets whenever possible because it actually wraps the native libraries on each uh, operating system that it runs on. So on Windows, it'll wrap the 
Microsoft API's uh, GUI. And so you end up seeing the exact same widgets you would see if you were creating it in VBA. If you're on Mac, it'll wrap the Mac's GUI, Cocoa, I think, at the time. And if you'd uh, wrap you know, Linux, it would wrap the GTK widgets for you. And it just does a really good job. And it also has lots of custom widgets. And so it looked a lot more like what my users were expecting it to look like when I switched it up and switched to Python. However, here we are with this fire hose of information. So I don't know about you, but when you're learning a brand new programming language and you're learning about GUI programming, and uh, GUI programming all by itself has its own learning curve on top of learning the new language, it's just like this fire hose of information. I'm like drowning in information. I'd write up some code, and then the next day I had forgotten what I had done. And so I decided at that time, um, I need some way to remember what I'm doing or to at least have good notes. So I started writing a blog. Now, you know, in high school at the time, I was like, I hate writing. I don't want to write all the time, but there's always these reports you have to write. Um, but I, I felt like I did an okay job at that. When I got to college, my college professors thought I wrote really, really well. In fact, one of my creative writing teachers encouraged me to write. And so I was like, maybe I'm not that bad at writing after all. And because of their encouragement, um, you know, I was more comfortable with it than I think I would have been had I not had that, those particular professors. So here I am. I'm blogging on my own website, mostly for myself. And I, I decide, you know, I should probably share this with the world because other people are probably struggle with some of the same topics that I'm, I'm struggling with. And so I went and found an RSS aggregator called uh, Planet Python, which still exists today. And you can still submit your blogs to it as long as they're Python blogs. And it'll take, it'll just basically read from your RSS feed and post whenever you post. And people can just go there and, and read your blog's posts if they like. And people started discovering my blog, and they started encouraging me too. And that was really helpful. You know, the Python programming community is amazing. They love their fellow programmer. They help you learn. Uh, they'll answer your questions. Uh, take the Debex Python mailing list at the time. Mailing lists were really big when I was learning Python, and that's where you'd go for help. So I go on Complain Pythons, which was basically, it was almost an R R IRC server, but it was on Google Google Groups. And I think it still exists on Google Groups. But anyway, kind of a list serve type thing where you go and you ask questions and people will help you. Well, Debex Python had a similar mailing list. And I'd go on there and ask for help. And the Debex Python group was amazing. The guy who basically helped create and maintain Debex Python was always on there answering questions. And he'd answer my questions and answer all kinds of other people's questions, even if they seemed, you know, kind of stupid. You know, I felt stupid anyway. They weren't stupid questions, I looking back, but they felt stupid because I'm like, how do you put a button on here? How do you center the button? How do you make it wider? Some of this stuff just wasn't obvious to me. And it's never, never obvious when you're beginning, how do you do these things? And so it was really nice to meet a community that'll just hold your hand and help you figure stuff out. And the Python community is like that. Whether you're working with them on the mailing list or on Twitter, or you go to PyCon, most of the Python community, well, is very, very helpful. And I, I really, really liked that. So back to the story about blogging. I was blogging, and people were enjoying it. And they weren't just enjoying it. They were starting to communicate back to me and asking me 
hey, Mike, could you uh, write about this topic or that topic? Or, you know, um, there wasn't enough information in this article. Could you, like, beef it up a bit? Stuff like that. And I'm like, uh, sure, if I have time. Or, yeah, I know nothing about that, but maybe I can learn about it. You know, some topics were easy to learn. For example, um, XML parsing. I had to do that on my job anyway. So writing about how to ex how to do uh, element tree, how to use element tree, which is part of the Python libraries, how to use that to parse XML. I could do that. Then I found out there's LXML, which is a plugin for Python or a Python package that you can add on. That's even faster and has a very similar interface, but it also has an Objectify uh, module submodule in it that makes uh, programming in XML even better. And so I wrote about that too. And you know, people just ask additional questions and you know oh hey there's another library that does this better or does this as does that better for example uh you know if you want to work with config files those ini files that a lot of people deal with on windows you can use python's uh, config module uh, if you want or you can go and get a config object which was i believe written by michael ford at the time uh, I think it's kind of a dead project now, but I really liked it a lot better than Python's own config parser module because it just made working with configs a lot better and less error prone. And so I'd write articles on both of them, kind of compare the two. And so my blogging career was born and I got, you know, I got a lot of followers and a lot of encouragement in my writings. And in fact, a lot of those blog people, those blog readers and commenters started encouraging me to write a book. In fact, I think the people who first encouraged me were the, were the people on WX Python's mailing list because they really wanted another WX Python book to be written. Now, here's something that was happening back, back then that I don't think is quite as prevalent now, but whenever you'd write an intermediate level book, like a WX Python book or a tkinter book or what have you, there was a lot of pressure to include you know, a few chapters on just the Python programming language rather than diving into the topic of your book. And the reason for that is that you wanted to help onboard new readers to the Python programming language. Well, as you probably know or have or figured out if you've done any kind of work with Python, you can't teach people Python in only two or three chapters, but you also don't want to spend 50% of your book teaching the Python pro Python basics before you actually get to the topic of the book. So I was a little hesitant to write a WX Python book because I knew there'd be a lot of people who would want that beginner info. And I didn't want to put that in my book. That didn't make sense to me. So what I did is instead of writing my WX Python book first, I wrote Python 101. Now Python 101 was basically the book that I wanted when I was a, be a beginner in Python. What I wanted to do after I learned Python was, you know, how do I deploy it? How do I create an application and give it to my friends? How do I create a Python package? Uh, how do I actually use uh, the Python syntax to create something? I have all these lists and dictionaries and um, tuples and strings. How do I actually put all those pieces together and do something with them? And most of these beginner books, they don't teach you that. They teach you the syntax, and that's about it. And sometimes they teach you really good stuff about the syntax, and sometimes they don't. But it was kind of frustrating because I'm like, what do I do when I'm done reading the book? So that's why I wrote Python 101. 
The first, I'm going to say like 20 chapters are, are syntax heavy. That's what they're supposed to be. You have to understand Python syntax to be able to use Python well. After that, I started talking about all the different things that I wanted to learn. Like, how do you install other packages, like using pip, or in my case, easy install back in the day. How do you um, work with different packages? What are these pa What are these different modules for, like subprocess? What is that? What is the logging module? Why would you want to use that? Um, I think I covered 20 like modules in the original Python 101 book. It was just 10. I don't remember exactly. It's been a while. So I would I covered the modules that I was using the most in my day-to-day -day work in the book as well. And then I talked about how do you distribute your code or how do you do uh, tutorials. I think I did a bunch of tutorials in the, in the third section of the book that just showed, you know, this is how you scrape a website, this is how you connect to a database, this is how you do this or that. And then I got to distributing your code on PyPy, our PyPI, the Python Packaging Index. And also, how to turn your, your application into an executable on Windows or possibly Mac. There was a bunch of different tools to do that back when I wrote the book. And there's a little bit less now, I think. But regardless, that's how Python 101 was born. And as soon as that book was out, there was a lot of people who liked it, some people who didn't. There's always some detractors. But overall, I had a really positive experience putting this book together uh, willy-nilly and all by myself. This was all my first indie published book, and it was amazing. I really had a really good time writing it. But of course, as soon as the book's out there, people are clamoring for a sequel. And you know that's kind of how my book career, which I don't, don't really want to call as a career, has started because it's still just a side, side hustle. So at this point, I think you kind of get the idea of how I became a programmer and how I got started in the Python programming language. And this kind of gets an intro into how I also became an author. I'm actually going to talk about that some more in a future episode on this podcast. But I think that kind of covers everything that I wanted to talk about in this particular episode. So anyway, I want to thank you all for watching and or listening to my to me ramble. And I hope you all come in, come and uh, listen to the next episode where I'll have a guest come on and talk about data science in Python. Hope to see you then. Thanks for uh, listening.